You can uh, open up your copy of the Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to go through uh, a paragraph here of verses 12 through 17. Uh, But I wanted to say thank you as I try to do most weeks. Uh, Thank you for your ongoing generosity as a church family. Uh, It's been fun to see even just some small ways that's put to use. Even this week, some of you came out on Wednesday night uh, to our uh, wheels night and got to eat free ice cream and enjoy. It was wonderful to see uh, people to come many new people. Thanks for inviting them. Uh, but to see just a small, tangible way that we take from the, the pool of resources that, that we uh, bring together to, to make a small gift, a small contribution to the people who came for an enjoyable night, but to more so to build relationship, uh, to build bridges upon which we can take the good news to people. And so thank you for your generosity. Uh, we have about a month left in our fiscal year, and so it'd be great to keep finishing strong as we plan ahead even for our next fiscal year and seek to continue to expand our ministry here. Uh, amongst the generations and then uh, out into the world amongst the nations. But thank you for your generosity. If there is one text of scripture that I think would be very fitting for the orthopedic capital of the world, uh, it would be this text we're about to read this morning. It's going to talk about strengthening weak knees and lifting up drooping hands. Uh, and as a, a younger man, I've had very little uh, experience in the, with the orthopedic industry, and I'm thankful to God for that uh, thus far. That may change in the future, but I had one small thing that I had to have done years ago uh, when I was the youth pastor here. I was playing basketball and tried to steal it uh, from one of the students. I won't say who, uh, but uh, it was my fault, and the ball came up and jammed my finger, uh, and it just did not heal right, and I tried to do what I could uh, to get it to heal uh, and to straighten back out, and it just wouldn't, so I had to go see an orthopedic hand surgeon. I have scarred to this day that reminds me of the surgery on probably the lamest orthopedic surgery you could have on my pinky. Uh, That is where I had it, but I am uh, weak (laughs) when it comes to medical things, so that was enough for me. Uh, But this text reminded me this week of that surgery and the follow-up from it, because the surgery was bad enough. I hate going under. I hate uh, having things cut open, things like that. Um, But the worst part for me was the therapy I had to do afterward. And again, this is just for my pinky, so I cannot complain too much. Some of you have been through much harder things, but I hated having to go to occupational therapy and like grab things with this pinky and stretch things out and push things out. It would hurt, and I hated doing it. I just wanted to just let it heal and just uh, to do nothing with it. Uh, But if you've been through any sort of physical therapy post-surgery, you know how bad it can hurt. You know how unmotivated you can be to do that, but you've also learned how important it is to be restored to health, Uh, that the surgery itself typically isn't just sufficient to fix your problems, that uh, there was painful things that had to be done to do the major work, but then there's painful ongoing things we have to go through to restore full health. And this text, I think, is going to speak to that reality in our spiritual lives. Uh, uh, There's no word therapy or anything like that in here, but the images that he's going to use point us that direction, that the Lord, sometimes we saw two weeks ago in the passage right before this, sometimes he painfully disciplines us. It's like he takes a scalpel to us and painfully cuts and, and brings hard things to our life. But usually it's not just a quick fix and there's no pain to follow. We have to persevere then through hard things on the back end of that. We, we don't just sit on our hands and, and just pass time. We have to press on in endurance and doing hard work after that, of enduring 
his discipline. And so this text we're going to read today, I think, speaks to that reality and our need to persevere through the Lord's discipline in all phases of it, to not short-circuit it. So we've been going through the book of Hebrews the last several months. We only have a few more, a handful, maybe more sermons. I only am going to do a few of them. And then Andy Royer, if you know him, is going to preach one. He's going to be in town. And Pastor Larry's going to do the final one from Hebrews. So I just have a few left. And so I'm kind of sad about that. I've been enjoying going through this book. But what we've seen again and again as we've gone through this letter is it's written by someone we don't know who, uh, but we do know some about who he was writing to. He was writing to early Jewish Christians. That's the name of the book, Hebrews. And he was writing to people who had come to faith in Jesus. They saw him as their Messiah. They'd heard about since they were little. But now opposition was coming against them. There was hardship coming for their faith. And they were tempted to shrink back, to just revert back to their Jewish practices, to kind of displace Jesus from being central in their life and to go back to their old ways. And the author again and again and again has been telling them uh, to endure, to press on in faith. And most recently he's been telling them about the prospect of discipline from God. If you were here with us two Sundays ago, you saw that, that when the Lord brings discipline to his children it's not just to harm it's not just to hurt he's not absent from it but he's doing something constructive and we may not see that we may not understand that but he's doing it out of love bringing it out of love but this author I think knows as he turns the corner into this paragraph that discipline can be hard uh, to endure. It can be very confusing, disorienting. And so he's going to call them in this paragraph I read here in a second to a very clear word of exhortation to press on uh, in perseverance, to persevere in their faith. But he's also going to give a word of caution to them as well, something to beware of. And so I want to read this for us, and we'll walk back through this text and see what the Lord would have to say to us in our day uh, from this passage of Scripture. So this unknown author uh, continues writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, starting at Hebrews 12, 12. He writes this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I'll summarize this paragraph and the author's intent and what I would want to share with you, with us today in this way, is that when disciplined, when you're being disciplined, persevere by God's grace don't presume upon God's grace. So when you're being disciplined by the Lord, when those afflictions come as a Christian, persevere by God's grace. Don't presume upon God's grace. And so I want to break this into two sections. Uh, the first is going to be his call to perseverance, and the section is going to be, or the second section will be his caution against presumption. Now I want to show you both of those things in this text and try to, to bring it to bear 
on your own life and our life together. So first I want to begin to show you a few ways that he calls these people and the Spirit would call us today to persevere in faith through God's discipline and the full range of it. So this text starts with the word therefore, right? So he's, uh, he's building this paragraph on what he just taught, right? If you were here with us two Sundays ago, uh, you saw that he was telling them uh, that discipline is from the loving hand of God the Father. Uh, that it, that, but he doesn't want this to just stay conceptual in their mind, to just know factually, yep, discipline's from a loving God, uh, and that it's good for me. He wants them in practical, real life to endure it. To, to go through it with faith. He doesn't just want them, he's not in writing this letter just trying to give them theological categories as if that's sufficient. He gives them these categories and he calls them to live in light of it, to live in certain ways. Because what he wants to see happen in their life when they receive discipline from God is that they wouldn't crumble underneath it. They wouldn't just give up underneath the weight of the Lord's discipline, but also he doesn't want them to wiggle out of it either and think that if I can just figure out a way, a way out of this pain that that'll be good for me. But he, he wants them to persevere under it. And so there's a few things we can learn about endurance, about perseverance in faith from this text. I want to share three of them, uh, how he calls them to persevere. Uh, the first one is going to be that you can see from this text that persevering in faith is an active endeavor. It is something that we actively do. Persevering in faith is not just a passive thing, right? Sometimes we think of like running out a clock at the end of a sports game, like doing nothing is, is what persevering is. That is not what he's calling them to do. It's just this passive resigning of themselves and just kind of watching the clock, let the days, months, years go by until God lifts this suffering. But he calls them to several active things, action steps for them to take in the midst of that painful discipline like look at if you just put your eyes on the first few verses there is several commands he gives right like really active things he calls them to do he says first in verse 12 lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees right that's not just passive just sitting that he's calling them to do things to take action though that's a near direct quote uh, from a verse from Isaiah 35 by the way where it, so he's pulling on scriptures they would have known he's saying lift your drooping hands don't just let them lay limp strengthen your weak knees seek to use them build up the strength in your weak knees right then he continues verse 13 he says make straight paths for your feet that's a quote from Proverbs chapter 4 he starts in verse 14 he says to strive for two things to strive for peace with everyone that's like this idea of almost like hunting like it's not just a kind of eh, like kind of a, a small effort this idea of striving is like you are really going after it you're trying to strive for peace with everyone and he says and strive for holiness in your life that there's supposed to be this real holiness that you're seeking to grow and develop in your life and so he, he's giving them these very active commands not just telling them hey sit and just take it just absorb it he's calling them to activity in the midst of their suffering and I, I just think it's important for us to remember there is no holding pattern there's no neutrality when it comes to enduring the discipline of God we are either growing in our faith and persevering in it or we are shrinking there is no neutral healthy state of just kind of watching it happen and just kind of resigning ourselves. if we become passive in the midst of suffering in the midst of discipline what is going to happen is not health 
It's going to be that those joints that are out of place are going to heal in bad ways, right? They're going to, they're going to heal in ways that feel like healing, but that aren't real healing. They're going to lead to increased lameness, right? They're going to be out of joint now, uh, for an enduring season. If you don't, if you have surgery and no therapy, right? You have the painful surgery but not the painful therapy, that's not real healing. Like you're not going to actually see through to the other side where you experience full health again. So he calls them to activity in their perseverance. But the second thing you can see about persevering is that it's a communal endeavor, that it's not just something that individuals do, that we just kind of suck it up and try to press on and learn and grow from it, but there's something that we're to do together. We've seen this several times throughout Hebrews. This isn't new, but he uh, points this out again here. So he says, for example, 14, that we're to strive for peace with everyone. Why does he mention that here when he's just been talking about discipline and how hard it is? Why does he, it feels kind of like a strange thing, strive for peace with everyone. I think why he's commanding that is because he knows full well and he's tried to tell them again and again, we need each other in this process of growth, right? In this process of persevering in faith. We don't have the resources typically that we need just on our own to really persevere in faith. We need people around us who can speak truth to us, who can remind us of things, who can challenge us, who when they see us just sitting on our hands and bemoaning ourselves can call us to action, call us to worship, call us to repentance. We need each other in our lives, right? Enemies don't help each other endure, right? They, they, they want to harm each other. And if we slowly become at odds or have rifts with our fellow Christians, when affliction comes, we're not going to be at the ready to help each other, right? Peace is something to be maintained amongst us so that when we do have affliction come, when we do have discipline laid upon us by the Lord, we actually have brothers and sisters who are there and have our back. And when they experience it, we are there with them as well. We're not trying simultaneously to heal a rift and then help somebody persevere. We, we come from a base of love and of fellowship with each other. You can see this call to communal action even in uh, the, the commands that start in verse 15, right? We'll return to these, but he says, the first one, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That is not a command you can just do for yourself, right? It's literally a command to look around at the church and try to see to it. You as an individual, see to it that none of these folks fail to obtain the grace of God. Like You have a responsibility to help these folks persevere in their faith. And they have a responsibility to help you persevere in your faith and to do that hard work of endurance. Uh, I, help, I volunteer at the YMCA uh, with a program called Live Strong. It's for those who have survived cancer, uh, whether recently or, or long in the past. And we had a graduation ceremony <clears throat> for one of those classes just a couple of days ago. And it was a smaller class. There was just four ladies. Uh, but it was incredibly sweet for me uh, to hear at the end of this. They've been with each other for a few months, helping each other do this hard work of exercise, things they didn't want to do at first, but doing this hard work of getting on a treadmill, uh, starting to lift weights, starting to be consistent in those things. And it just made me smile to hear them talk about how much they have appreciated each other in the process. 
that they maybe have tried some of these things before to be restored to health and never really succeeded. But when they had these other ladies with them to challenge them and to push each other and to remind them of the goal that they're pursuing, they were much better equipped to do that, to persevere through these hard things. And if they can do that for their physical bodies, we are to do that for each other's souls. There's much more at stake, right? That, that we have a responsibility to help each other persevere and one other way I think you can see the communal nature of perseverance in this text is really back in verse 12 where he says to lift your drooping hands strengthen your weak knees those words your aren't actually like in the original thing that Paul wrote they're reasonable that that is a way you can interpret it that is very good to say lift your uh, drooping hands strengthen your weak knees but you could equally write it this way that just say lift drooping hands strengthen weak knees and it's this idea that man it's not just when my knees are weak that I need to bolster them but if I see another brother or sister who is lame spiritually who's going through a hard time spiritually I have a responsibility to help them strengthen their body to strengthen their spiritual body to strengthen their soul Uh, members are to take care of one another right there's a man named Thomas Manton who once wrote this he said there must be a constant watch kept not only over our own hearts but also over the congregations to which we belong. Members must take care of one another. This is the communion between the saints. And we have a responsibility for each other as brothers and sisters to help each other endure, to help each other persevere in the faith. May we never see somebody shriveling spiritually under the Lord's discipline and just leave them to their own devices. Like if they are shriveling, if there's weakness in their heart and soul, if they are shrinking back in faith, we are called to go after them, to lovingly pursue them, to challenge them, to help them grow in their faith, to remember the truth that they once believed, that they continue to believe deep down but are tempted to disbelieve and walk away from. We have a responsibility collectively. But the third thing I want you to see about, uh, about this uh, call to perseverance is that perseverance is a sanctifying endeavor. It actually benefits us. There, there's a reason God calls us to endure, to press on through this suffering. Uh, it's, it's sanctifying. Verse 14, there's quite this statement where he says that we are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is quite a statement to say there's a holiness we must possess as people, if we are to see the Lord, if we're to be one with him. And we may misunderstand that, but I don't want to to strip this text of what it is saying. This author is saying there is holiness that needs to be in place in your life if you are ultimately to be present with the Lord. If you are to enjoy eternity with him, if you are to see him face to face and enjoy his presence forever, there is a holiness that must be present in your life. Now hear this, he does not say that there needs to be a perfect holiness to see the Lord, right? Like that, that we need to arrive at some state of perfection in the here and now if we're to have a hope of seeing the Lord in eternity. But he, does, he doesn't say that we need a perfect holiness, but he's saying we need a real holiness, right? There, there needs to be holiness present in our lives as human beings if we are to see the Lord. And I think sometimes we focus so much, and hear this in the right spirit, We focus so much on the atoning work of Christ on the cross, which is of supreme importance that Christ died for our sins so that we might be forgiven, that we might have a guilt removed from our record, that we might have a clean record with God the Father. We focus so much on that aspect of what Christ has done for us that we fail to remember that Christ also was raised from the dead 
and unites us with himself so that we will be transformed people, right? We're not just to be forgiven people who stay the same. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news of Jesus. We are forgiven people by the work of Christ. But then when we're united with him by faith, we become transformed people who the spirit of God actually starts to come and dwell within us and starts to change us from the inside out. And he doesn't do it all at once. It's gradual, but it must be real and present in our lives. And if there is not a growth in holiness, it should make us question. It should make us wonder, is the Lord truly at work in me? Is the spirit of God in me at work without holiness we will not see Christ he doesn't mince words there it's a requirement right and if that is a requirement holiness having a a sanctified character persevering through discipline is part of what develops that right persevering in faith through discipline is what develops holiness in us there's other ways god develops it but that's part of how he develops holiness in us right if you look at verse 13 he's telling them he's told them hey lift your drooping hands strengthen your weak knees like get to action make straight paths for your feet then why does he say to do that the end of verse 13 he says so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather what Rather, be healed. Like there's growth that's supposed to come by this action of persevering, right? I I loved hearing a story Pastor Rod told me. I asked if I could share this uh, briefly. Uh, He he would never brag about this. He ran a marathon a couple uh, weeks ago, and he's done this before. But at staff meeting, he was telling us about one he ran several years ago where he had had an injury uh, leading up to that marathon, and he didn't even think he was going to be able to do the race. Uh, but as it got closer, he had done all this training, and he went through, and he did it. And to his surprise, he was able to make it through the 26.2 miles God bless you. I don't know how you do that. Uh, But he made it through that race. But then based on the the pain he'd been experiencing leading up to it, that evening, I think after the race, or maybe it was at lunchtime, I don't know, but that same day after the the race, he was feeling incredibly sore again and uh, feeling those aches and, and things come back. And uh, he, I think, was probably dreading what the next day would be like and whatnot. But there was a person, I think it was at a restaurant, that, that came up to him unsolicited. And uh, this guy had run a lot before, run marathons before. And he gave him this advice. He said, hey, tomorrow, like, you are not going to feel like running. You are not going to feel like walking, maybe even. But what you need to do is just try to go do a short little run. It'll benefit you tremendously if you do that. And I think Pastor Rod kind of disbelieved him. Like, yeah, right. Like, I'm not, I don't want to go do that. Uh, and how he told the story, this is at least the image I have in my head, is that the next morning, uh, he was either near to needing to use crutches or actually using crutches to get around because the pain was so bad. But he, tr- he wanted to try what this guy had said. And he started just like hobbling a little bit, started taking steps, and it was hurting. But slowly, like as he took more steps and things got loosened up, he, he felt like, man, I'm able to walk a little more freely and I can kind of jog a little bit more. And then eventually did like a full run. I don't know how far he ended up running, but because, the, the point of this would be because he pressed through that pain that tempted him to, to shrink back and think, I, I'm just going to sit in my hotel room or at home or whatever uh, tomorrow morning. He actually took painful steps to try to get restored back to health. Health came, 
right? That, that's, it, the action of work was what actually brought about health. And so uh, this author is saying as you persevere in faith, health will come to you. And it may not come exactly in the way you want or the pacing you want, but it will not come to you if you don't persevere. It will not come to you if you just sit on your hands passively and just wait for the storm to pass. That is not how holiness has grown. It has grown by activity. So the last thing I want to say under this heading, and I'll quickly turn to the second, is that I want us as God's people, as we're persevering through the Lord's discipline, to persevere by God's grace, not for God's grace. I think there's sometimes that we can read a text like, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and we can start to think, ooh, like I need to gain God's grace. Like I need to obtain it by something that I do, by like my hard work, by my diligence, by my persevering in the faith. Like I need to grab on to this grace of God and gain it for myself. Almost like it's a pri- like holiness, perseverance is a price I have to pay to get God's grace. That is not what this text or the scriptures would teach you. The, the, way, the reason and the way that you persevere is because you've already received God's grace, not in order to obtain God's grace. Like we press on in faith because God has already shown grace to us in the sending of Christ and the granting of his spirit, the gift of his word, the gift of his people. He has showered grace upon grace to us. And so we press on in perseverance never to gain God's grace but in light of God's grace that's already been granted to us. More I could say about that, but I I need to move on to the next point. So if, if he gives in this text a call to persevere, he also equally gives a caution against presumption. And that comes especially in these last few verses of this text. And I want to explain, this one will take a little more explanation because it may feel more cryptic or unclear to us, this language about Esau and root of bitterness and these sorts of things. But uh, this author from verse 15 down tells them to, do you see how 15 starts? He says to see to it that. And then he tells them three things that he wants them to see to it that this, see to it that this, see to it that this. And so the three things uh, that are these. The first one that he tells them is see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, right? That's the start of verse 15. The first thing there to see to it is that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And what his concern here is, as best as I can tell and understand this text, this author's concern is that there are people who will take God's grace for granted. Like that they will presume upon it. That they will assume that it's theirs. That they will assume that they possess it, that they have it. And then they're going to disregard the very God whose favor they think they have. That they're going to feel safe, they're going to feel secure, think that they have God's grace upon them, but that when they get to the end of their race, when they come to judgment someday, that they will find that they have never actually obtained the grace of God. Not that he gave it to them and now pulls it, but that they never had it in the first place. That is what he is concerned about, and he wants these members to be concerned about in their body. is to look around and say, may that be true of no one in this congregation, that there's people who think they have God's grace but in actuality, do not. So that's the first thing he says, to see to it. The second one, he says, to see to it, this is in the second half of verse 15, to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that many people become defiled by that root of bitterness that springs up. 
this takes a little bit of explanation because I think we actually, myself included, I think we misunderstand this text a lot of times. When we read let, to not let the root of bitterness sprout up, what my mind goes to, and I'm guessing what your mind goes to, is just how we typically use the word bitterness, right? Like of resentment towards somebody or sourness towards somebody. Like, and we think he's saying, don't let that grow in your heart. Like this sourness toward people. That is a true thing, like that we should not let grow in our heart, but I don't think that's actually what he is saying here. If you have the ESV, which it's not like the sacred translation of scriptures or something, but do you notice something about the words root of bitterness? If you have the ESV, yeah, they're in a parenthesis or quotation marks. English teachers will get on me, quotation marks. Uh, that is on purpose. Not all English translations do that, but I actually appreciate that the ESV does that because I think what they're trying to tip you off on is that what he's referring to is actually a phrase or an idea they were already familiar with, that there was this root of bitterness that they would have, a literary thing they would have been very familiar with already, that he's not just telling them, hey, I'm creating my own metaphor here of a root of bitterness, but he's referring to something. And what he's referring to, I believe, is Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 through 19. If you were here with us last school year, we actually preached through this text, but I want to put it on the screen so you can see it. In that book of Deuteronomy, Moses had written to the people of Israel, and he had written this to them on God's behalf. God spoke this to them through him. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That's the ones they're about to take over. He says, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That, I think, is what the author of Hebrews is referring to. Remember, he's writing to Jewish people, right? I think that that text from Deuteronomy is what he's referring back to. And the root of bitterness, when they would have heard that phrase, would have been thinking of these types of people who convinced themselves, hey, I'm part of God's community. Like, I have God's favor upon me. I can live how I want. Like, I can just do what I want. I can follow the gods that I want. I can indulge in what I want. I can live life however I see fit, and I will be safe. Like, I have God's favor upon me. And Moses' concern when he uh, gave them those words of Deuteronomy was, I think, the same, I think, as the author of Hebrews' concern. And it's be the same as my concern today is that there would be people who are presuming upon the grace of God while they just live life with utter disregard for him, uh, living however they see fit. To presume upon something, uh, I looked up, for definition of what that means, to presume upon something, how we use it today, is to expect too much from a relationship in a way that shows that you do not understand your role in the relationship. I, I think that that is often how we relate to God. We think the relationship with him is, oh, he just gives me favor, he's granted me favor, and then I can live however I want. I, I have this luxury, I can just indulge, live however I want. That is a presumption. That is a wrong presuming upon God, thinking that he just owes you grace, that it is yours no matter what, that, that you can do with it whatever you want, that you can meet God on your own terms. None of us meet God on our own terms, right? 
God is the one who dictates the nature of our relationship with him or not. Like we don't come uh, to it with our own assumptions, with our own uh, thoughts. We go by what God says. He's the one who defines the relationship, right? And what this author wants is for these people to never presume upon the grace of God. To not start to, I don't think he was concerned that they were going to set up literal idols there uh, and start worshiping actual false physical gods. But I think what his concern was, this author of Hebrews, is that they would start to have these functional gods in their life, right? As opposition came against them for their Christian faith, what they're going to be tempted to do is start to have these gods of comfort, gods of ease. Gods of acceptance in the culture, gods of familiarity, of all these sorts of things, that they're going to set up these gods that they worship more than they worship Christ. That when pushed to a wall, they're going to follow after these gods and not follow after Christ. But they're, he's concerned that they're still going to think they have God's favor. That they can just live how they want, worship what they want, do what they want, even disregard the Savior God has sent. And think that they still have the forgiveness and the grace of God upon their life. And he's saying, see to it that none of you have this root of bitterness grow up. Where you just indulge and justify your rebellion against God. The third and last thing that he tells them to see to it that is this thing about Esau. Which may, you may not know much about the story of Esau. But in verse 16 he says the last thing. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And then he kind of riffs on the story of Esau from back in Genesis. But I want to share a couple brief thoughts on this. The story of Esau. This is like a counterpoint to what he did back in chapter 11. If you remember that, he had given all these examples of men and women of faith, like people who had pressed on and persevered in faith uh, from the Hebrew scriptures. Here, he gives a quick counterpoint to that, uh, a character from the Hebrew scriptures, a real man, Esau, who actually defied God, who actually strayed from God, who went away from God. He uses him as an example here. If you don't know much about Esau, very briefly, Esau was the grandson of Abraham, right? He, he was the son of Isaac, and God had started making these promises to Abraham and then to Esau's dad, Isaac, uh, of blessing that he was going to bring about, of, of giving them this land and even blessing all the nations of the world through this family and through that line of Abraham and Isaac. So Esau was this oldest son of Isaac, and so he had a glorious, bright future ahead of him, right? A glorious inheritance that was awaiting him, a birthright that is just mind-bending to consider. But what Esau did is he traded, if you want to think of it this way, he traded future reward for present comfort, right? There's this story in Genesis 25, if we had time I'd go through it, but some of you know it, where he came in from hunting and his brother had created this stew, which must have tasted incredibly good. I cannot imagine stew being this appealing. But he had made this stew that Esau, when he came in, he was so hungry, he was so desperate, he sold his birthright as the oldest son to get one, a single meal. Like the author of Hebrews points out how silly this is. Like to just satisfy his hunger in that moment, to make his belly feel better, he sold the entirety of his birthright to his brother, right? Unless we have compassion on Esau that is uh, outsized, this was not just a momentary lapse in judgment for Esau. Like you read through his life, it was not just a momentary lapse. Even Genesis, that story, ends by saying 
Esau despised his birthright. Like, it's like he didn't think anything of it. Like he thought it was insignificant. Like he despised it almost like he didn't even want it. And when pushed to the wall, choosing between this glorious birthright that God was granting and a bowl of stew, he chose the stew, right? And uh, then he becomes, if you read his story, he actually becomes very defiant toward God. Like, read through Genesis some and see who he starts to marry, for example. See how he, I think that's what this author is getting at when he says he becomes sexually immoral and unholy. Esau's life starts to, to drift even further away from God, even the greater disregard of God. And the kicker of this whole thing, and why this story, I think, is the one he tells here, and even alludes to it in verse 17, the kicker of this whole thing is that Esau still expected the blessing, right? Like he had sold his birthright. He had despised it. And then he had rebelled against God in the entirety of his life. And at the end of his father's life, he was still expecting the blessing to come to him. Like he was still thinking, oh, it's, it's good. It's coming to me. He was desiring it, right? He was desiring to inherit the blessing. But when he was ultimately rejected, and that's a long story as to how that came to be. But when he was rejected and didn't receive that blessing, Esau is devastated. He, he had assumed it would be his. He had assumed that it would be coming to him. All the while he had been rebelling against his family and rebelling against God and rejecting God's promises. And this text, I don't want you to misunderstand verse 17. Because I think sometimes when we read verse 17 here, we think that when it says, though he sought it with tears, that you see that? We think that it in that is repentance. Like we think, oh, he wanted to repent. Like he, he wanted to change. He wanted to uh, to, to come back to the Lord. He wanted to, to turn from his sinful ways. I do not think that this text is saying that's what he sought. I think that it that he is referring to that Esau was seeking was the blessing, right? What he was seeking with tears was the blessing. He wanted the good reward of God. He wanted the land. He wanted the blessing and the favor of God that would come. What Esau was seeking was not repentance, it was the blessing. His tears were not over his sin, right? It was over his loss. It was over of what he had squandered, of what now he could not get back. That's what was devastating to him. Not that he had been sexually immoral and unholy and had despised his birthright, but he, he was uh, seeking the blessing without repenting. He, he was seeking the favor of God without truly turning to God in faith. And he tells this story, and he ref this author references the root of bitterness, all to try to caution these early Christians about this danger of presumption, this, this danger of just assuming I have the favor of God, but I'm going to just live how I want and reject him. He is saying, that is not a, a sign that you have the grace of God. Like if you have the grace of God in the future, in eternity, if you're going to receive it and you're going to be a recipient of that blessing of eternal life with God, you will actually experience the grace of God in this life as well. Like there will be indicators in how you live your life that you are truly seeking to follow after him, right? There's a, a man named J. Vernon McGee who said this. He said that presumption is as dangerous as unbelief. I, I would actually say it's even more dangerous than unbelief. This presumption that 
Man, if discipline comes to me and God brings hardship to me, I can just reject him. I can walk away from him. I'm frustrated with him. I can just live however I want the rest of my life. But I, I at youth camp, like I turned, I gave my life to Jesus or at that church they had an altar call and I gave my life to Christ but now this discipline's come upon me and I'm frustrated I'm, I'm walking away from it but I know in the end I will have God's favor this man would tell us and the spirit of God would tell us that is a lie like if the spirit of God changes us if he comes into our heart and draws us to repentance and unites us with Christ he will enable us to persevere like And perseverance, it will be hard. It will be painful. There will be times where we sin, where we wander, but we will come back to the path of righteousness. We will come back to a place of repentance and faith in God, no matter how hard that discipline is that he brings to us. We will return to him. Presumption, I think, is even more dangerous than unbelief. At least with unbelievers, we know that they're not claiming God's favor, uh, that, that they're not deceived, but we can often be deceived into presuming upon the grace of God. And hear this as a word of application from Esau's story. When we have the discipline of God come upon us and we're tempted to walk away from him, when we're feeling the pain, the sting of discipline, do not trade future glory for present comfort. Like it may feel easier and healthier to you when discipline comes to just walk away from God. It's easier for me to just avoid this. It's easier for me to walk away from his people. It's easier for me to just forget about this stuff and just pretend that it's not real, pretend that it's not existing. That is you selling your eternal state for a bowl of stew. Or that is you wanting in the moment present comfort and ease for yourself of trying to wiggle out from this painful discipline that God has for you. But what this author would say is, remember what you are foregoing. Remember what you are giving up. Like, true believers will persevere in the faith. Do not trade future glory for present comfort. Very last thing I want to say today is I want to speak to those of you in the room who do not yet believe in Christ. You've not placed your faith in Christ as of yet. Now, most of this sermon has been to believers, uh, to people who are already trusting in Christ and uh, calling them, calling us to persevere in our faith no matter what hardship comes. But what I would want to tell you if you're not a follower of Christ, you've never placed your faith in him, is that, and you know this to be true, you cannot persevere in what you have not begun, Right? Like, don't hear me telling you today, like, oh, you've always been a believer and you just need to, to become a better believer. We all start as enemies of God. We all start as those who are apart from him, out, outside of him, rebels against him. And sometimes when we start to know that that God exists and we desire to be restored to him, what we think we need to do is we think we need to do surgery on ourselves. Right? We think, I need to clean up my own life. I need to get my act together. I need to, to clean myself up to be able to come to God. It's like when, uh, like before I had my pinky surgery, I tried to heal it myself. Like I tried and tried and tried to get it to straighten out, and I could not. Uh, and we do that with our souls sometimes. We, we start to think, I just need to put in enough moral effort and spiritual effort, and I'll, I'll get myself cleaned up and acceptable to God. But I can... I cannot heal my pinky. If I cannot do that, you surely cannot heal your soul. You cannot gain the holiness that you need to please God just by becoming a better person. Like you can try and try and try and try and you will not heal yourself. 
None of us are capable of that. You can no more heal your soul than you can give yourself a heart replacement, right? But the Spirit of God has to do that work in you. And what I am telling you today is there is good news for you that God is willing and able to do that work in your soul today. That he can change you beginning today, a change that will last for eternity. He, he is willing to not just forgive you, as glorious as that is, because Christ died on the cross for sinners like us. If we turn to him in faith and ask for his forgiveness because of Christ's work on the cross, he will grant that to you. But even more than that, if you take him up on that, if you turn to him in repentance and faith, he will make you into a new person. Like he will change your heart. He will give you a heart that actually longs for him, that desires him, that serves him. He will begin this path of life today if you turn to him in repentance, turning from your sin and turn to him in faith, trusting in what his son has done for you today. Esau ran out of chances to repent, right? To the unbelievers in the room today, you still have a chance. Like today, this moment, you can turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and I call upon you to do that. Join us in this race. It's a painful race. There's hard therapy to come. I will not lie to you about that. There's hard work that you'll have to do to persevere in faith, but we will help you do it, and you can help us do it. And someday we will all get to see our Lord, right? We will get to see him face to face, enjoying that full holiness uh, once and for all.